Hello everybody, welcome back to the Buddhist Centre podcast with me, Chandradasa. It is delightful to be back after one of our occasional extended breaks. We have lots of good intentions to do this podcast every week. We once did this podcast every day for some time during the pandemic. Thankfully, we no longer have to do it every day. Although it's generally a delight to meet people and hear their stories and talk about the Dharma and what it is to live a Buddhist life in the 21st century across a global community, which is the Triratna Buddhist community in this case. And global is the word today because I'm coming to you live from Ahuatepec, Mexico, where we're gathered interestingly, at a Benedictine abbey with a convent nearby for a Buddhist convention of Buddhists from across the Pan-American region. So that means Mexico, Venezuela, Brazil, Argentina, also Canada and the United States. And then you've got interlopers like me from Scotland who happen to live in the United States and we have a bunch of guests, delightful guests, from Europe. So we're here for a big gathering of order members. Again, just to explore these questions of what are we doing? It's the archetypal question in therapy, isn't it? Why am I here? Why am I in this room? And I'm very fortunate to be in a room with four old friends. Four old friends who are going to help tell the story of today's podcast, which is delightfully called The Tale of Tipu's Tiger, a classic North American Buddhist right livelihood project, which meant a lot to a lot of people. And I think a lot to our culture back in the day. I don't know if you've all been together in the same space for a while. I don't think you've had a conversation about living and working together in Tipu's Tiger in the 1990s and early 2000s. But I'm very glad that the family of Tipu's Tiger has come back together to have a reunion today on the podcast. So I'm going to welcome everybody. First, on my right, Dharmacharani Varada. Thank you. Yes, I'm very happy to be here. And I am originally from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Moved to Montana in the mid-90s, and I've been there ever since. And where's Montana, for people who don't know? The Pacific Northwest of the U.S. in the Rocky Mountains. Whoa. Right up near the Canadian border. In the beautiful Rocky Mountains. Mm-hmm. On Varada's right, we have Dharmachari Budapalata. Thank you very much. I've been living in the States for about 37 years, having moved from Britain, where I was involved with Tree Ratna, and moved to Montana, I think it was 1995, where we started a Tipu's Tiger Indian vegetarian restaurant. Which we will come on to in a second. <laughs> and beside you is our friend Arya Drishti, who is an order convener for the area in Tree Ratna of the USA and Canada. Welcome, Arya Drishti. You gave a big talk today. How did it go? (laughs) I think it went well. I'm relieved to be done with that and to be here with my friends. Mm -hmm. A little bit more intimate setting. And you're also from the Pacific Northwest? Well, I was born in the States and grew up in Canada. And then I actually came back to the States specifically because Verida said she wanted to start a women's community. And that's the lifestyle I wanted to live. So I said I would just come and move in with her. And she said yes. Fantastic. (laughs) <laughs> old friendships in the room and last but not least my long-term friend and colleague at Dharma Chakra Dharma Charni Vrilila yes it's great to be here for another podcast I met Arya Drishti on my first or second going for refuge retreat where we had both asked for ordination and that would have been in 1996 I think and then a few years later, I moved to Montana for about just under two years mm-hmm. as part of this project, which I was very excited about at the time. Mm-hmm. And we were all having lunch together before this recording, and we realized that 1996 is quite a big year. We were all doing major things in 1996, and lunch seemed a good place to start as well, because Tale of Tipu's Tiger, I suppose, partly 
at least revolves around food almost as much as it revolves around Buddhist practice and mm-hmm. friendship and love and working out how, what on earth we're doing and how do you do it well. So let's start with you, Buddha Palta, because I, I think Tipu Stagger was your idea, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It came out of necessity in a way. Myself and my friend Punya, who had moved to Montana as well, we'd had trouble getting enough work to get by. Eventually, after about a year, Punya had moved back to the Boston area where he was able to get reliable work. And I was left wondering what I was going to do. So a friend of ours helped with getting a bank loan with a very little experience on my part. We uh, did a very simple business plan presented to the bank. And with our friend's guarantee, we were able to get the money eventually to start working on the restaurant or cafe, really. Did you have a background in the food industry? Were you, was I, this just something you loved? What was... Well, there were a number of things. For me, I had very little background in food. I did work in a right livelihood cafe in Brighton, but a very short period of time, three or four months, I think. Also, I missed Indian food. <laughs> <laughs> and in Montana at that time, there was no strictly vegetarian restaurant and there was certainly no Indian food available. And so I thought that would be a good idea to do that as a sort of livelihood. Initially, we were thinking just for maybe three or four people. Mm. So there's, there's already a lot to talk about. I want to, I want to ask about your family. Was food a big part of your home life? Did you come from a busy kitchen? Were your parents or your siblings always cooking at home? I do come from a foodie background in that respect. My family, particularly my mother and my grandmother, her mother, were both very good cooks. And I learned quite a lot from them, just by osmosis, I think, watching and smelling and tasting. I think that was really the basis of what we started doing in terms of recipes, though there was a lot of work involved in refining the recipes for serving to large numbers of people. So one of the things that we've already mentioned a couple of times is right livelihood. If you're listening to this and you don't know what that is, it's part of a set of core teachings of the Buddha called the Noble Eightfold Path, which basically splits life up into eight different areas and suggests that we pay attention to them, particularly ethically, that we try and purify these areas of our life ethically. And work is obviously a big thing for a lot of people. So in our Buddhist community, there's long been an interest, and it's sometimes a real emphasis on trying to create working contexts where Buddhists can work together and work in an ethical environment. I think it's probably fair to say it's not quite as big these days in an organised way. Lots of people, of course, work in ethical livelihoods. But back in the day, there was a real scene, wasn't there, around creating Buddhist businesses where people could work together, earn their livelihood, and also go deeper in their friendship. And that's what you were doing. You weren't just starting any old restaurant. You were just saying, I want it to be a particular kind of restaurant. Yes, I think that's a really good point. It was important for me to be able to work with fellow Buddhists or people who are, you know, leaning in that direction as a way to cooperate and have a sort of common ethical basis to do that. I think food and serving food is a really good way to express that. Hmm. Farda. Now, we've only just met, actually, I've heard of you for many years through mutual friends. <laughs> you and Budapalta are married, right? Yes. Where were you married at the time when this restaurant started? Were you together as a couple we, at the time? We were together. We've been together about 33 years. We moved to Montana within about a year of each other. I had a bookkeeping background, so it was a little easier for me to get work, but I was also really interested in supporting this venture. So I was the bookkeeper. 
I did work in restaurants as a person because that was the easiest job to get. But I didn't have any experience in the kitchen. I was just a waitress. So when you first heard the plan, did you think this is a great idea? Or were you like, what was he doing? <laughs> or... No, I thought it was a good idea, actually. Did you have a sense back then of what right livelihood was, or was it just a big experiment? Yes, actually, I had moved to Montana after having lived and worked in Cambridge, England for 18 months at one of the movement's largest right livelihood businesses, the Evolution gift shop in Cambridge. In Cambridge, the big one? Ah. And so I was keen to continue exploring that and to continue exploring living in women's communities. I really enjoyed. I must have just missed you. I did a Christmas season once at the Cambridge Evolution Shop, not that long after you went to Montana. Oh, yeah. Must have just missed each other. (laughs) But here we are, 2023, (laughs) finally. We're in the same room. (laughs) Bad time. (laughs) So that's a little bit about the founding of Tipu's Tiger. We'll come back again to how the adventure unfolded from there. Ari Drishti, Vera Leela, you both went to work there. This was a context for you to go and join that was already kind of up and running. Uh, what was that decision like, Ari Drishti? Why did you decide to do that? Well, I was very, very inspired by the ideals of Triratna and particularly the community and the right livelihood. I really wanted to pour my whole self into a spiritual life, into a Dharma life, connecting with others around that. I came across Tree Ratna in Melbourne, Australia, had a really strong sense of friendships there. And then I'd moved to Vancouver, British Columbia to finish up my degree. And it was very thin on the ground and it was very difficult to kind of connect. And so I was really looking for more depth and connection in that practice. I was on a retreat in Montana. It was an amazing retreat called Nalanda West which was a whole other topic in and of itself. But it had a lot of really experienced teachers and practitioners coming from all over the world to meet in this park and, and talk about the Dharma. And I overheard Verida in the bathroom saying that she wanted to have a women's community. And I didn't know who she was. But I said, I want to have a women's community. I will come and live with you in Montana. And she said, great, wonderful. And so I went back to Vancouver, finished up my degree. And three months later, I'd sent my stuff, that, which arrived on Verda's porch. And I don't think she really took me seriously that I was actually going to come and move in with her. <laughs> but I did. And she was very accepting and welcoming. Mm, can't have a community without community members, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love that it started in the bathroom accidentally. <laughs> Overhearing a conversation. Somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and Vera Leela, if I remember rightly, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think our friendship probably goes right back to the point just before you moved there, actually. I think you came to stay with us in the UK, I think. Yeah, yes. You did. You came to stay with me in the UK. And then not long after you got back to the States, you decided to go and move west. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my little story leading up to this was having become a mitra and requested ordination, and I very quickly moved in with a community there in New Hampshire around the Arioloka Buddha Center. And that community moved, I think, three or four times in a very short period of time. And one by one, the people who were interested in living in community left. And then I was like the last person standing and I was going to be living on my own. Arya Drishti, who wasn't Arya Drishti then, <laughs> and uh, Varda came on retreat at Arya Loka, and we were in a group together, and they were talking about how wonderful Tipu's Tiger was and how they were recruiting women to come and work there. 
I was interested, but also there was a lot of reasons to stay in New Hampshire as well. Yeah. So as Varda and I were negotiating over, I want to say email, but maybe it was telephone or handwritten letters, I don't know. I said, I'm not sure if it's the right decision for me to move to Montana because I had moved so many times in my life. I think at this point I was about 30 plus moves and I was in my early 30s. And so... And you, you said something to me like, well, Sangharakshita says, if you're not hanging upside down off a cliff, you're not really living the spiritual life. You should just come. And I said, but my cliff might be to stay, <laughs> Very wise, very wise, young age. My cliff might be to, to stay. stay. Yeah, so, but in the end, I did cool. decide to go, and I was delighted. To... We, we should get t-shirts made this way. My cliff might be to stay. <laughs> What's your cliff? What's your cliff? What's your cliff? That's right. Well, maybe that we can go around again later. What's your cliff? Yeah. That's a pokey thing to say, wasn't it? <laughs> I was very much on the fence, though. I didn't know you. Right. Well, that was very much the spirit of the time, wasn't it? It was, mm-hmm. again, a different culture. I think the, the mid-90s, still, Toronto was in a growth phase. We weren't even called Toronto. We were called the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order. And it was still growing and expanding. Mm-hmm. One of the themes that we often come back to on this podcast is nobody's really ever tried consciously to start a global Buddhist movement. Lots of Buddhist communities have obviously spread globally, but usually from a very solid base in one country mm-hmm. and often for a very long time in one country. Chiratna has been founded sort of simultaneously around the world. It started in the UK, but within a few years, people were in New Zealand and in Scandinavia. And India. In India, that's right. And then by the mid-80s in the United States, and then Mm. it's spread and spread and spread. So it's a very interesting project. And there's something almost archetypal about all of these people moving somewhere else for an idea Mm. or an ideal, a lived ideal. I'm wondering a bit about what that was like for you. Out of necessity, you thought, I can get a bank loan to start a business so I've got enough to eat. And then suddenly it's like hitched to this beautiful ideal that Mm. attracts people, beings over, what, a decade, something like that? Yeah. Yeah. So what was the whole run of that like? Well, I think that's a a good question because initially when we started the business, my idea was it it would just be a small team, maybe four or six people would run it. But we were overwhelmed by the response of the public. In a way, it was great, but in another way, it created all sorts of problems that I had not anticipated. And in fact, the first day we opened, we ran out of food. We actually had a line out the door going around the block. And we didn't even announce the opening. We just decided, myself and Chris, who I worked with, to, to start the, the business we decided on the spur of the moment, okay, let's just do it. Nobody knows that we're going to open. And sometime late afternoon, early evening, we made that decision, open the doors, and to our total surprise and horror, the word got out and uh, we ran out of food. So it was uh, both exhilarating and terrifying. When we were making it look nice and putting some paintings on the walls and so on, We had taped paper up over the windows in the front, and I had drawn a picture of a tiger and written, coming soon, which doesn't say what it is, what's coming. And and so that did stir a little bit of interest, I think, in the local town. Was this the most exciting thing that had happened in the town for a while? It was like, a tiger is coming <laughs> I soon. Know. It's a, yeah, I mean, it's a small city, but it was in a really good spot right near the river. So. Mm. 
And what exactly was it? So it's a long time ago now, but if it was opening next door, what would my experience be? What would I get at Tipu's Tiger? Chai. <laughs> chai. Best chai ever. Mm. Which has lingered. And the chai has lingered. We'll probably touch on that later, but presumably not just a chai shop. No, again, I mean, I think when we first opened, I couldn't handle cooking a lot of different dishes. So we had, I think, four or five main dishes. Rice, basmati rice, and dal, which is a you know lentil soup or sauce, and samosas. That was it. That was a very simple menu. So people could decide if they want a couple of dishes. And, but everything came with rice and dal. It was a bit like a little Indian place in Bombay, Mumbai or something. That was the initial idea, was keep it really simple. So we had, you know, four or five rotating vegetarian curries. We had a very small kitchen. I mean, it couldn't have been more than six foot by 12 foot. That included the dishwashing area and the stove, like a six burner stove. So it was very compact, but very efficient as well. How many people fit in the first place? It wasn't many, I think. 25, I think. Yeah, something between 20 and 25 Mm. people. One of the things we ran into was a sort of a translation problem because Missoula is near a number of Native American Indian reservations. And so we put Indian food and they came in expecting something like fry bread, which is what the Native Indians serve. And so people didn't have an experience of Indian food, people in Montana. And they also were quite surprised at the lack of meat. You mean Um, no meat? (laughs) Not even lack. And uh, so there was a little... We we had to change our name to East Indian Food, but I'm not sure that even solved that problem. And then we had the names, of course. We had to explain what Chana Masala was and all of the different Indian names. But we were near the university and we very quickly caught on with the young set. And what did your family think of you starting a restaurant? Were they thrilled? Were they like, you don't know how to cook? What's <laughs> your, mother, your mother call you up and like tell you what to do with recipes? Actually, my mother came out. I think you guys were there then. My mother came out to visit, but she spent a day or a good chunk of a day or more maybe helping to train some people to cook. And it did definitely help a lot. But she was really gracious doing that uh, on a holiday. Because really my experience of cooking came from doing it. And I was notorious for not following recipes, which caused problems for people. (laughs) Because I'd make a curry, it was really good, and then couldn't replicate it because I hadn't written down the recipe. I mean, I could remember what I did, which led to me being too key to the Mm. cooking part. So eventually there was somebody, Naganataka, who's an order member now, but at the time he was a friend, uh, Mitra, who was working with, that would follow me around with a notebook and Varada, writing down what I was doing. So we were able to standardise recipes. And very Lila, how many years into tipus was it when you landed? So when I arrived on the scene, there were two tipus. So I'm Mm -hmm. sitting here curious how that came to be. So when I arrived, I was put into the original location, right? And it was a women's team, and it was fine dining Indian. And across the street was the second tipus tiger, yeah? Yeah, yeah? That was more casual and more takeout and... Bigger, bigger kitchen, bigger dining room, two floors, bigger meeting room, I remember. We had a big Mm. meeting room there, Mm. too. 
I remember the first week, so I was excited to go because Ariadrishti was my friend was there, and she showed me how to serve food. And I made the mistake of holding these big heavy trays with my dominant hand, mm. and then I was doing this very shaky left-handed, less dominant service to the table, and was like spilling chai and things. And then she told me, "Oh no, hold the tray with your less dominant hand, and then your service will be smooth." Mm. Um, <laughs> which was a big lesson because I had never worked in a restaurant before, yeah, so yeah. this was my. My first time in a restaurant and I did find it incredibly hard work yeah. incredibly hard yeah. work yeah. and how long had you been there are you it must have been maybe two years as well but by the time that Viri Lila arrived I was at the end of what I could do I really poured my heart into it but I'd gotten to the place mm-hmm. where I wasn't even eating I would like Mm-hmm. subsist on mango lassis and I would be cooking and serving this amazing food but I just like couldn't yeah. take it in anymore yeah. and I was unable to sustain it so I still have a sadness about not being able to hold on until my friend Vera could come and yeah, join yeah. me and also just kind of abandoning her in this project for a time it affected our friendship mm-hmm. I think for a time we were not talking not communicating and we'd been very close on these GFR retreats. But then sometime later, when we came back together, we came back together much stronger. Mm-hmm. And we didn't talk about it. We didn't work through or process any of the stuff that happened. It was just that you and I had been through something together yeah. that affected mm-hmm. both of us quite deeply mm-hmm. and has just strongly connected us ever since. And mm-hmm. I kind of feel mm-hmm. like that with all of us, mm. that there is a depth and a connection that's been melded in this yeah. place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to pick up on that because we talked a bit over lunch again about we can sort of time jump around the tale of Tipu's Tiger. You two, in a way, are just in very little, you sort of came in towards the end phase of it. And we've heard a little bit about the start of it. And although things got difficult towards the end, presumably at the start, things got better and better, even with difficulty woven through in terms of having to learn how to run a big restaurant, you were successful. Oh, Garda's making a face that doesn't say success. Well, it was difficult from the get-go. I mean, it was successful, but being the bookkeeper, I had a particular perspective. And it started as a bright livelihood business for men. So there was a men's team. I felt really driven to wanting to have a business for the women to work together. So when this property across the street came to be available, we decided we would rent that space as well and split the team into men in that space and the women in the other space. And then we had to distinguish between them instead of having the two same restaurants in the same block. That's why the original one became a fine dining restaurant. And the other one, we called it Tipu's Cafe. Mm -hmm. It went through various iterations. The fine dining restaurant became a deli because the fine dining, just working at night, wasn't really working well for us, but that's my memory of it. So lots of shifting forms and, and attempts oh, yeah, to make this work. And... Well, I think what happened with the second location was because we couldn't keep up with how many customers were coming. Our lease on that place is huge. It was something ridiculous, like $4,000 a month. And then this other place became available with a much bigger kitchen, more capacity for customers. But at least my thinking at the time was we would transition once the lease was over at that place into the other location, which we did eventually. But while we had the two, it presented the opportunity to have 
two different teams. And it was successful enough, it was busy enough, it was... Yeah. Well, we made a change. So yeah. the fine dining aspect, my recollection of it was we were a bit in competition with ourselves right. as a business right. because it was similar food, Yeah. served a little differently, different atmosphere, certainly in the two spaces, but same food. So our cook, Sharon, had run a Mexican restaurant. And so she proposed a change to the dining experience. And we changed to Tipu's Deli. I think mm. at that point, and started doing very good enchilada sauce mm. and very good breakfast burritos mm-hmm. and going to the farmer's market. So there was a bit of outreach and taking this new formula for the restaurant out to the community. Yeah. And it was quite popular, actually. It was very, yeah. yeah, it was very good. Yeah. And I think it was a good change financially to move away from the higher end fine dining to another takeout model, but of different food. It's hard to pull off fine dining with no meat and no no alcohol. Alcohol. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so in a way, this is the business food side of it. And we're all really starting to hear some of the tensions and the difficulties and the challenges. What about the Buddhist side of it? As you were growing the business and having to make all these changes because the <laughs> success, were you still working quite consciously at the Buddhist right livelihood side of it? What did that look like? What did it feel like if you were providing it or if you were in it? You know, in some ways it's so much easier to run a business that does not have these ideals. I mean, I currently run a business that does have these ideals, but they're not as explicit. And even that, I mean, there's higher expectations. But I remember waitressing at one point and people would come to want to work there and they were not Buddhist or they were Buddhist. And they would say, oh, but you're going to take care of my needs as well as the customer's needs. And I remember it was a very, very busy night and one of the waitresses was just not present at all. And I said, what's going on? And she said, Oh, I was watching a movie last night and it had this scene and it was a sign and I need to connect with this other person in my life. And I'm like, um, could you take this to table four? <laughs> I need you to take this to table four. And then you know, a few minutes later, she just wandered off, left the restaurant mm-hmm. without saying a word and came back a few days later. I'm back now. I can contribute. I'm like... You need to do the work, the mm-hmm. physical work as mm-hmm. well as the, yeah. the so connection. Did, did you have a lot of naivety then, people coming thinking, mm-hmm. uh, working in a Buddhist business is like this, yeah. 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 and it didn't involve too much business? It was just or like, too much work. Or too much work. <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. And a restaurant in particular is just so much intense sort of work. It's interesting hearing that story because I had probably several similar stories where people just didn't show up for their shift. Yeah. Yeah. And so I may be assisting staying Sharon and doing front of the house sort of hosting but now I'm serving and now I'm cleaning dishes and now I'm sweeping the floor and going out to the shop to get something Sharon forgot to buy and you know it's just like juggling all these things at once. Well what was the training that was happening? The work is the tantric guru. (laughs) What does that that mean? The work is the tantric guru. What does that mean? One of the things that we did, even with the people that were not Buddhist, is we would start the day with Buddhist ritual? Yeah. With dedication. Yeah. Yeah. Of why we're doing what we're doing. So, Mm -hmm. you know, serving beings with kindness and. From the start, we had people working who weren't even Buddhists. It worked for the Buddhists, but I think a lot of the other people couldn't quite connect with it. And how did you do that? Was that a set of verses? Was it. Yeah, we used something from the Puja book. Dedication ceremony? Yeah. Well, and at the end of the night, we would often 
go upstairs when we finished and transfer our merits for the day. Mm -hmm. And that was a meaningful part of the work to me. So that's a very big Buddhist thing, isn't it? It's just trying to see yourself in the context of service to yeah, all beings, yeah, yeah. whether you're running a restaurant or whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. But I guess not everybody was in that boat. How many non-Buddhists and Buddhists were working? At, what was the peak tipus? As I recall, I think at peak we probably had more than 20, 24 Buddhists working there between the two places and probably as many non-Buddhists working part-time. We had a lot of students who worked, mm -hmm. you know, one or two nights a week or one or two mornings a week. So in a way it varied depending on which year, but also seasonally, because in the winter months things would slow down and we'd have to go down to a core team. So it did vary quite a bit, but I think when it was at its height, at least in terms of Buddhists working together, or you had three communities, many of the people, if not most of the people living in them, would work in one or the other restaurant or cafe. So, you know, you had that going on. People would have their communities to go home to. But I don't think we were ever entirely all Buddhists working together. Well, actually, towards the end, it was mostly non-Buddhists. And what was that like for you? I mean, that's quite a big responsibility. You know, again, you just go to start a little business and then suddenly yeah, communities, yeah. a local Buddhist centre, presumably, you're all yeah, connected yeah, to. Yeah. Lots of people, actual real beings coming and right. throwing their lot in with you. Did you feel on top of it at any point? Did you always feel like it was getting away from you? Well, we had the Buddhist Centre first. And in a way, that was a good source of support. But I think once we got to the point where we couldn't keep up with business and these Buddhists were coming to Missoula to live and work together, I never really felt on top of things. I always felt a bit overwhelmed by... Well, not just the responsibility running the restaurant, but also trying to find ways to make it work for people who'd given a lot, really, you know, sacrificed a lot to go there, you know, leave their lives behind, like Viri Lila did and mm -hmm. others I can think of. People moved from the Bay Area, from the East Coast. So I did feel a, a weight of that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there was a lot of friendships being built, you know, many of which are still alive. I'm thinking of one particular guy who isn't a Buddhist, but we keep in touch. He's in Israel right now. He's got a family now. And, and there are others, you know, in other parts of the States that I hear from. So I think that those connections, those friendships, even though they were in a bit of a pressure cooker, survived and have matured in some ways. And I certainly feel that amongst the four of us. Mm. There's a maturity of well, trust and friendship. And even though we went through very difficult times for periods of time, that was what's come out of it in terms of value spiritually, I think. Hmm. Yeah. A common sort of experience and effort to live together with ideals that we all want to live by. Hmm. We did try to make decisions consensually among what we call the core team, which was the full-time Buddhist team. And sometimes that worked and sometimes it didn't. And sometimes the people who had responsibility on the financial level had to say, well, actually, that decision isn't going to work. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Was the money ever retention? Often in idealistic businesses, money can be one of the things that comes up. Were all the profits going back into the business? I know nobody was getting rich off of Tipu's yeah. Tiger, but what was happening with the money? Well, there weren't very many 
profits. We had a hard time becoming profitable. We borrowed a lot of money. We received a lot of money from other order members in the world who wanted to support us and loans and things. And in the end, we realized that it probably was the lack of a liquor license that kept us from being profitable because that's the way restaurants make their money, usually. But we tried to pay a living wage and we did provide health insurance for mm. the full-timers, which was and how long was very all this, rare. How long was all this go for? Because that's quite a big thing, achievement mm-hmm. to support that many people for that long with actual proper money and health care, particularly in the U.S. The restaurant ran for 10 years. 10 years. Yeah, yeah. from beginning the, to end. Yeah, but the support part was very difficult. I think we tried our best to be as fair as we could given the economics of running a restaurant. But as I recall, the health insurance was... It was cancelled because we didn't offer it to everybody. We only offered it to full-timers. Right. And we didn't realise that was a thing you couldn't do (laughs) until they cancelled it. So pulling all this back in again, you started a business... It sounds like it's grown in directions you didn't think it would grow in. You've actually done something successful on several levels, but it comes with a load of strain. From your perspective, all of you who were kind of part of this, was it a sense of things went wrong? Or was it just you took part in something and then you left and it changed? Was it a crunch point for any of you or was it... Well, just very little. I'll just say that the crunch point for me was when Buddha Pallada came to me and he said, or he asked, so how's it going and can you commit to another five years? Because I guess the lease was up on the original place. And I remember just welling up with emotion because I was pushed to my limit and I didn't think I could. And it was hard. It was a hard decision to communicate. And we had changed that restaurant to the Taboo's Deli and it did sell, I think, in the end. Yeah, it sold. Oh, it didn't. (laughs) It was up for sale. (laughs) The business sold and failed. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so that's when I parted, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, was at that stage. I think in retrospect, that was a lot to ask of anybody, really. For me, it was how are we going to carry on, because debts like that take time to service and clear. At the time, you weren't ordained. No. I did ask that of the order members who did say yes, but subsequently didn't follow up on what they said. But in a way, that was the sort of period, I think, where things began to break down. We had the people leaving, we had conflicts within the team, conflicts within the order members who were working together. I think it's only in hindsight, you know, there were things we could have done perhaps that would have made the transition easier, but it wasn't to be. It kind of fell apart when most of the Buddhists had kind of done as much as they could and Mm. needed to move on and do something else in their lives. And... We found ourselves managing a team of non-Buddhists, and we said, what are we doing this for? This isn't what we wanted to do. Mm. What year is this, just to help people locate this? It would have been about 2002. That's when I left, 2002. Yeah. Yeah. And the restaurant started when? Yeah. Uh, I think it was 96, mm. the end of my... it was uh, May of 97. That's oh, was it May of 97? Yeah. 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 Okay. Very bright flame that burned very brightly, for sh- <laughs> but for a short period of time. Yeah. 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 It feels like it was much longer. It does. I mean, the restaurant continued till 2009. Mm-hmm. I worked in it until 2008 with Sharon. Sharon left, I think, about 2005 or six because it was a visa issue, but also 
she was ready as well. So the last period of time, it was just myself with a group of, I don't remember them being any other Buddhists at the time, but so it was a very different experience for me than that last couple of years. Well, I had a legal obligation to the dead and I remember Buddhists working till 2003 quite intensely, but I went off on a long retreat, coming back to find that a number of people had already left and uh, so sort of picking up the pieces from that. Mm. So for me, it was quite a sad ending in a mm. way. What's come out of it for me is the value in other ways, you know, the friendships and the common experience, and that you can actually create right livelihood and good things can come of it. I think you need more supportive conditions than we had. Experience is helpful too. Experience is hugely <laughs> helpful. Sharon, Sharon was really know. good. Sharon was a trained chef. Are you still in touch with Sharon? I am, yeah, yeah. Do any of you carry regrets about that whole experience? No. 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 That's good. That's a good sign of I I have to say I have some regrets. I felt like I wasn't able to live up to my ideals. Hmm. I did do the best I could, but I would have liked to be better. Well, it's the same, but I guess I don't regret trying. Mm -hmm. No, I don't. At some point it became so obvious to me that my ideals were so unrealistic. (laughs) 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 It was just like... I felt like I was trying to create a Buddha land of, you know, (laughs) harmony and wonderful ways of working together. And all of you were just not cooperating with it and getting in my way. How did that work out for you? (laughs) Well, that's (laughs) really doesn't work, does it? Mm. So that community we had was the best one I've ever lived in. It was the hot tub, wasn't it? The hot tub made a big difference <laughs> after working all day in the restaurant. Did you get access to the hot tub or was that the women's No, that was the women's <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting listening to all this as a kind of outsider. I heard about Tipu's Tiger in the UK where mm. I was living and doing my own training, sometimes from American friends, but it was also live in the culture, right livelihood. I lived yeah. in Cambridge, there was a big right livelihood situation there that you worked at Varda and there weren't that many right livelihood businesses starting. But it was a very strong mm. emphasis. When I moved to the States, I started to hear some of these stories over the years. I was always very curious as to what it was about Tipu's. Even over lunch when we spoke, fairly early, you said to Varda, you have to tell them about the tiger that you painted on the wall. When you said that, I can almost see it. I've never seen this thing. I don't know what the image is. I'd love to see a photograph. Maybe we can put it in the show notes for the podcast. But it did burn with that strong, almost mythic mm. resonance for a while. Was painting the tiger on the wall an act of something more than prettifying a restaurant? Well, it was for me. At the time, part of the myth of my spiritual life had to do with tigers, and I was exploring that. And there was this great big blank wall up over the counter, and I could just see the tiger up there with a little meditating Buddha as part of it. And I'd never painted a mural before. But I really wanted to do it, so I got up on the scaffolding and kept getting up and down and up and down and painted a waterfall on one side and couldn't figure out how to make it look like a waterfall. But I went to sleep and dreamt how to fix it. So then I went back the next day and I painted the waterfall. (laughs) Yeah, for me, that, that had a really strong effect. Putting my art on a big wall was a big thing for me. 
I think why I'm connected with it so much, I'm just remembering this now, is for a few years before I came out to Montana, I was doing face painting as fundraising. Oh, and we painted a big backdrop for our tent that had a tiger on it. Oh, it's I a didn't big know jungle. That. I just made the connection, and I think there was something that I was resonating with in that myth for you that drew me to the space and then over lunch I realized that the shrine room our shrine room in that space was behind that wall that's so right it did hold mm-hmm. I think a bit of energy something you know that held the ideal and we used to joke about when it got really intense that we just had to hang on to the tail of the tiger we were in the tiger's cave yes <laughs> lots of lots of metaphors yes that's oh, the other tail of the tiger yes. <laughs> So I guess, you know, as we sort of wind this conversation down a bit, it's obvious listening to you actually that it's shaped your practice to some extent, together and individually. What would you pick out as the thing that Tipu's means to you now when you've had time and space to process it and your sense of practice has grown and changed and presumably matured over the years? Where does Tipu's fit in your Mm. sense of practice? I think it's made my practice possible Mm. because I think before that it was... The goal, the goal of enlightenment, the goal of something higher, something way out there that we were all reaching for, these very, very high ideals. And it wasn't what's right in front of me and what's Mm -hmm. happening right now and the conversations that I'm having in this moment. How do I help someone wrap a samosa? How do I connect with someone taking an order? And I think that it refocused my energy more on the path, on the next step of the path, on being very present and not just some kind of lofty ideal way out here that Mm. you're never going to reach for that kind of energy. That's quite a strong thing to say, isn't it? Mm. It made your practice. I was also very idealistic at that time. And when I came up against my limitations, I was surprised um, Mm. that they existed, you know, and I felt a lot of disappointment. I think afterwards, I went on two long meditation retreats that next year after I left, and realized that I'd hooked into it was everyone else's fault that it didn't work. Mm. And it was this real opening around, oh, it's just conditions. Mm. It's just people doing their best. And it's a great vision, you know, trying to move towards the ideal is a great thing to do. And Buddha Pallada, when we were in a group the other day and we were talking about measuring success, it's like a team-based right livelihood in this sense doesn't mean it's a multi-million dollar mm. restaurant that exists for generations. I like the word grit, you know, what spiritual grit comes to the surface. And that, for me, it was learning that suffering just is, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. okay, and that you can come together around it with love and friendship. I guess for me, I found myself going off to be ordained about a year after it had started. And coming back, it was a very challenging but very good thing for a young order member to come back to. When I think of it, I remember the love and the joy and the friendships. And I know there were a lot of conflicts and, oh, it's not quite working out and how am I going to make payroll and all of these different, because I was a bookkeeper. But that's not the part I remember. Mm. I was just thinking about the joy and the camaraderie. I've got a couple of photographs, one where we have a gathering at the women's community and there's a lovely photograph of the whole Tipu's team, both the men and the women, 
along with several other people. The smiles on people's faces are sort of really delightful. And there's several other photographs like that. It's a really important reminder of how people did enjoy that period of time. I think, in a way, for me, it was a different experience. Not that, that was great. I felt very much part of that. But I think the afterwards part was different for me because I had to pick up the pieces. (laughs) And it took a lot longer than I would have liked. But it's always been, you know, a touchstone that, well, actually, what I tried to do had its successes and its failures, but it definitely gave me difficult experience and ones that I've had to work with and grow from, manage the sort of disappointments and the difficulties that came from financial failure. But, you know, I always look back and think about, well, even now, here we are, we're sitting together and... In Mexico in 2023. In Mexico in 2023. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, that's what's magical about it. And we have this history, this story that we're all part of, mm. along with maybe another two dozen people yeah. that aren't here. And that's just speaking about us, right? And the customers. You think about all the yeah. customers that went through those doors. I still get stopped on the street in Missoula 10 years after the restaurants closed. People saying, I wish you would open again. You know, and I would say, I wish you would go to hell. <laughs> with meta. Tremendous amount of meta. Or wouldn't you like to open a new restaurant? Yeah, yeah. It goes not on your life. But you know, people do still stop us frequently and say, that was my favorite restaurant. Yeah, mm-hmm, was, yeah. I went there once a week when I was mm-hmm. a student. And I recognize people. Looking at it from a different perspective, for me, it was a way for me to become a part of Missoula community. Yeah. Not the Buddhist community, but the sort of wider community. And that actually made a big difference mm. for me, I think. Living at Arioloka for 10 years is not the same as living in the United States. Yeah. And so for me, it was part of that experience that I finally felt like I arrived in the country I've been living in for 10 years already. Yeah. But the restaurant is what did it. Many of us, probably others as well, walking around town, you know, oh, yes, you work at Tipu's Tiger, don't you? Or, mm-hmm. But I got to the point where after the restaurant closed, I didn't really want to go to certain places because it touched a nerve for years. I and mean, even now, I won't go to the good food store, which is this big health food store, you know, with organic veggies and stuff, because I don't want to be stopped by somebody <laughs> saying how they missed it. As lovely as that is, it's something that I'm aware that, you know, maybe I haven't quite finished dealing with yet, but sometimes even way out of state, somebody recognises me and they're like, are you the guy who... Because we had so many university students come through, so our reputation went far and wide. And I think that helped with building the chai business, going back to the first thing you said. That was your, that was your, that was your business postscript. Was yeah, your, you got a chai business at least for quite yeah, a long time, until yeah, recently, yeah, right? Yeah. But it's still going. It's yeah. still going. It's yeah. still going. It's not ours anymore, but it's still... Yeah, yeah. It's oh. very good. It saved my coffee this morning. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting listening to you, Bhutapata, because it sounds like there's a lot to be proud of. Right. It sounds like there's some pain in there still. I guess what strikes me most listening to all of you is just, you know, love is infectious. Although yes, people come up yeah. and talk to you in the street 10 years later, yeah, they yeah. don't do that for most restaurants or most no, cafes. No, it's like there's true. something else that you were doing, yeah, yeah, that you were living was... out and embodying and exemplifying, I'm sure, yeah. imperfectly. Yeah. But I don't think that's to be underestimated. It's no, really that's... something to be proud of. That's a good point. Well, I hope you can carry some 
Buddha prayed forward about, <laughs> about your great efforts. Yes. It's really obvious just in the friendships in this room that yeah, you know, this has yeah. been something central to life almost, mm. or to the growing up in the Dharma life. I don't think I'd be here if it wasn't for Ari Drishti, mm. you know, her generosity. You know, I think I mentioned I haven't been to a convention for 20 years. Part of that was financial, but also part of it's to do with not feeling entirely comfortable. So much of my order life from that period was tied up with something that needed resolving. And I felt like I couldn't give in other ways Mm. because of that. And I think I'm just beginning to come out of that. We kept up contact whenever we could. Ari Drishti's visited us, we visited her. At least I have once, twice, I think. But it's that kind of support now that she's got a business that's successful. I do feel that's helped me resolve some Mm -hmm. of that history and... There are other people I'd like to re-engage with. I think it's interesting that it's come around that way. I'm very happy that you've made it back. Until, until <laughs> the it's been lovely to meet you, actually, on this, yeah, on this conversation. I've heard about you yeah, so much yeah. over the years. Yeah. Yeah. I you just want to add yeah. one thing. is When I heard from our industry that you both were going to be here, I was so happy. Mm. <laughs> and I just heard it maybe three or four days before we came. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah so yeah, I didn't yeah. know. And I'm just yeah. really grateful to you, Chandra Dasa, for initiating. Yes. It's very healing. And it's very warm. And yes, the friendships are very much still very important to me. And that time was very mm. pivotal in my mm. own Dharma mm. life and the whole of my life, really. Mm. So I'm grateful. Yeah. Grateful. Yeah. And yeah. very grateful to you gals for coming out and participating yeah. in it. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have happened without people like you. No, it wouldn't have. I mean, it would have been a whole different story. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean that and not in a good way. I think it could have been kind of damaging and... I'm thinking of several other people who've made such a big change in their lives, mm. basically trusting that what we were doing was a good thing. <laughs> and that made it a good thing. Mm. Mm. Well, listen, thank you very much for all agreeing to do this. I know when I asked each of you, there was definitely hesitation. <laughs> and I really appreciate you being so generous as to share this again. And I feel a great privilege just to watch your friendship. Mm. Mm, thank you. You know, yeah. it's like watching water be poured on a flower again. It's like, oh, there it is again. <laughs> it's really beautiful to see. And well, I hope you do feel proud of it. I think Tipu's yeah, Tiger yeah. was a really important tale for Triratna mm-hmm. in the United States. It's a yeah. tiger's tale. It's a tiger's tale. <laughs> so, thank you to at home for listening. This is the first of two podcasts from Mexico. We're hoping to have another one in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. It won't be me, of course. And if you enjoy this, if you enjoy the tale of Tipu's Tiger and other stories, Please tell your friends. Mm. There are a million, squillion, billion podcasts out there. And people choose what they listen to. And they choose when their friends tell them something's good. So tell them about this one. They'll get to hear this lovely story of pretty much everyday heroism and friendship and love Mm. that's transformed people's lives. Amazing. And we'll see you again soon for another episode. But take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Bye for now. (laughs)